I invite you to find Jonah chapter 3 in your copy of the scriptures. We'll have the words also displayed up over, overhead here, the passage we're going to be talking about this morning. Remember in your prayers today our high school students who are on retreat, as well as Tyler Magnuson, who's leading them, and the um, other volunteer helpers that they have with them. They'll be coming home this afternoon and um, enjoying the benefits of having been gone and spent that time together. What a great thing. The theme of the book of Jonah is the mercy of God. That uh, theme and that thread has been with us as we've worked our way through the first two chapters. The first chapter presents to us the particular theme of our need for God's mercy. We talked about that a couple Sundays ago. Chapter 2 presents to us the, the particular theme of God's willingness to show us mercy talked about that last Sunday. Chapter 3, our subject today, is what it means and what it looks like for us as God's people to represent the God of mercy. So you see the the particular nuance of each chapter. We move from our need for mercy to God's willingness to show us mercy. And having been shown mercy, now what does it mean? What does it look like to represent the God of mercy out in the larger world? So as chapter three begins, um, Jonah begins to go into the city and actually engage people representing the God of mercy, the God who just saved him out in the ocean, out in the sea. He now gets to go and represent that same God among people. He is seeing real faces in the city. He's speaking into real ears and speaking to real hearts. Words are coming out of his mouth and the people are actually making a response. And there's a direct connection to us as Christians. We also represent the God of mercy. Having been shown mercy, we walk in the world representing this God of mercy. We too are sent by God to people with a message. We call that message the gospel. We're on a a gospel message, gospel rather mission to the world to present this message to people that need to hear it. There are two ways that we can go wrong, at least two ways. We're going to look in particular at these two ways that we can go wrong in our mission this morning. One way we can go wrong is to compromise the message And by that, I just mean we can fail to deliver the message or we can deliver a wrong message. We can say something to people that's not true. 
That's one way we can go wrong. The other way we can go wrong is that we can communicate a faithful message for God without looking like God. We can communicate a faithful message. We can do it exactly right in terms of what we're supposed to say. We can get all the particulars right, but not look like God. Okay, this sermon is mostly about our attitude. We can carry a faithful message before the world, but with a bad or unloving attitude. The reason I titled this message... Um, duty is because that's how Jonah sees his mission. It's something that he has to do. It's a duty to begrudgingly be carried out. And this, as we said, is the main problem in the book of Jonah, that God's spokesman doesn't look like God. He doesn't act like God. He doesn't have a heart like God. And so God's working in his life. He's working on him and teaching him. And that's the reason that we're in this passage too. Because God is at work on our hearts and we want him to be at work on our hearts, okay? Therefore, having all these things as an introduction, therefore, here's the goal. Our goal today is to answer this question. How do we engage the world around us in truth and in love? How do we communicate to our neighbor both you're not okay the way that you are and I love you? How do we do that? How do we communicate those two things at the same time? You're not okay and I love you. That is the million-dollar question because the narrative of our society today is that those are mutually exclusive concepts that you really can't communicate you're not okay and communicate love at the same time. To love someone, according to the, the dominant narrative in our society, to love someone is to say that you're okay the way that you are. You can't tell someone that they're fundamentally in need of life change, a new birth, and love them at the same time. And yet, that's what we've been called to do, to deliver a faithful message, change nothing about the message from God, but with a true heart of love. How does that happen? That's what we're trying to track down today in Jonah chapter 3. All right, let's read the text and then let's get into it and see what the Lord has for us. Let's stand in honor of God and his word, shall we? Jonah chapter 3, I'm going to read through the, just the very first verse of chapter 4. This is what we find. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. 
They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. We commit ourselves uh, to the ministry of the Holy Spirit now, Father, uh, trusting uh, in this wonderful ministry of the Spirit to show us what these things mean, what they mean for us, and to empower a response that pleases you. We lift up our high school students to you and the adults that are with them, and we pray for them, uh, for their good, for their encouragement, for their building up together in community, for their love for each other, for their witness to their fellow students. We pray for a safe trip home. We pray for those that that we know that are part of this fellowship that are um, at home, uh, fighting for strength, trying to recover, not able to be here, but with us in spirit and uh, sharing in this time of fellowship over the word. And we pray for their encouragement and that you would give them the strength and rest that they need. How we thank you, Father, for the beauty of the day and the encouragement of being together, the beautiful music, and now the beautiful word of life that's set before us as a feast. Thank you. We love you. We pray in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Please be seated. Our first point's going to be really brief, but it's really important. We're just going to notice the nature of our engagement with the world. The the three points today are our engagement, our message, and our attitude. Our engagement, we're going to just fly through this. This is verses one through three. We're just going to notice the nature of our engagement with the world. We see Jonah begin to engage pagan Nineveh in verses one through three. He gets in there and he engages with them. And our task is just like his And here's what we need to understand about what we're doing. That we are not here specifically and mainly to engage the culture. Our mission mainly and specifically is to engage people. The nature of our task, thinking about our gospel 
mission is to engage real people. Our commission from the Lord, according to Matthew chapter 28, the great commission is not to engage in a culture war. You probably won't hear me use that phrase. I've used it before. You may have used it before. We're not saying that engaging the culture for the good of our society around us is a thing that we should be negligent, negligent about or shouldn't do. I'm just telling you that I find it to be a distracting and unhelpful phrase to describe our gospel mission. I would counsel us not to use that term or think in those terms of a culture war surrounding us that we're engaging in. And here's why I would encourage us not to use that phrase. Using the term culture war dehumanizes our task. The culture is a really easy pinata to just beat on all day long. Oh, the culture is horrible, and it does this, and I'm so upset about that, and we just can beat on that pinata all day long. The culture, the culture, the culture, the culture. And take on a, an antagonistic attitude in a confrontational attitude. But we would never strike another person the way that we beat on a pinata. Our task is a human one. It's, it's personal. We're in the book of Jonah, but we're going to talk a lot about Jesus today. Jonah's whole ministry points to Jesus. He is in this book many times a kind of antitype of Jesus. And Jesus' mission was utterly human. He came to engage real people like Nicodemus and the woman at the well and Zacchaeus and the lame man by the pool of Bethesda. He came on a a people mission, and like Jesus, we are sent to engage real, living, breathing, working, thinking people like us. And a, a culture war implies that people are enemies to be defeated. No, people are souls to be cared for and prayed for and won for Christ. So I would counsel us to think this way. Let's stop thinking about how to engage the culture war and think about how do we engage people faithfully and lovingly. That's the nature of our engagement with the world. We engage with people. That's what Joan is doing in verses one through three. All right, moving on, we want to say something about our message. This is verses four through 10. In order to be faithful in our engagement, there is a message to deliver. We find Jonah's message 
in verse 4. Jonah's message was this, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. When I was uh, studying in seminary, just starting to learn Hebrew, how to read Hebrew and speak some words in Hebrew, our Hebrew professor had us memorize this statement that Jonah makes. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. We had to memorize that statement in Hebrew. And so in order to do it, I started saying it at home so I could get it into my, get it into my mind. And one of our children, I won't say which one, but one of them really latched on to that phrase. And they memorized it in Hebrew. And they were really little. And so we had this little child, probably two years old, walking around the house in their onesie in their footy pajamas, screaming out, just like Jonah, in Hebrew, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. It's wonderful. It's just like a little picture of what Jonah was doing, marching through the house, marching through the city, shouting out this message, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, delivering a message of warning. We also have a message. Let's talk about that message. There are two distinct gospels being preached today. Two distinct gospels and two different gospels, both claiming to be the Christian gospel. And if you want to know the difference between the two competing gospels, ultimately it comes down to this this question. How does God demonstrate his love for people? First of all, the false gospel. What does the false gospel say? The false gospel says, here's me with all of my desires and values, strengths and flaws. Here's me, a big bag of strengths and weaknesses and values and beliefs and practices. And here's God. He created me. And since he is Perfect, And since he is my creator, I must be just like he intended for me to be. Since God does not make mistakes, God is pleased with his creation. No change is necessary in me. In fact, if I were to try to change myself or become a different person... That would do violence to that which God has created perfectly. I would fail to be my authentic self. So the conclusion is, there's nothing separating me from God. I'm accepted unconditionally by God just the way I am. So in this false gospel, how does God demonstrate love for people? Well, he demonstrates love by accepting everyone just as they are. God simply loves a person unconditionally with all of their values, beliefs, practices. That's what it means for God to to love a person. And we can see why that gospel is so attractive so attractive. I don't need to give anything up. 
I can do whatever I want to do. I can be whatever I want to be. I can practice whatever I want to practice. I can have a relationship with God and be whatever I want, do whatever I want. I can call all the shots. He's just accepting of whatever I am. See why that's so attractive? It's a gospel for today. It's forward thinking. It's not old and fundamental with certain things I have to subscribe to and certain things that are okay and not okay. It's exactly the gospel that we would want to create if we could create the gospel Be whatever you want, do whatever you want, and God is cool with it because he made you. What is the problem with that gospel? One name should be ringing in your ears. In that gospel, where is the need for Jesus? Where is the necessity of the cross in that gospel? There, in that gospel, there is no need of Jesus. There is no need of the cross. Jesus is reduced to just an ideal. He's a model of a, a good life. But his body and his blood are not necessary as the sacrifice that brings reconciliation between God and man. Because in the false gospel, there is no problem. No reconciliation is necessary between us and God. That false gospel is attractive, but it's not true. The true gospel is pictured here in verses 4 through 10 of Jonah 3. Verses 4 through 10, the, the bulk of this passage, compose a little gospel drama. It has all the necessary elements of a little gospel drama. It's all here. Look at what happens. The word is proclaimed in verse 4. A word of warning is proclaimed to people. A word of warning. Things are not okay. And then, in verses 5 through 9, belief and repentance are exercised. There's a word of warning. God is believed and repentance toward God is exercised. And then we see the conclusion in verse 10. We see mercy extended by God. That pictures the true gospel. A word of warning God is believed, repentance is exercised toward God, and God's mercy is confirmed. That pictures the true gospel. What is the true gospel? The true gospel is that this is me with all of my faults and values, strengths and weaknesses, and I'm confronted by the word of God and told things are not okay. Yes, God did create our race in goodness and without mistake. We were created good. But sin has entered in. I have inherited a sin nature from Adam. And as a result, 
my desires, my values are tainted. I want to do things that are wrong. I delight to do things that are counter to God's moral perfection. I now oppose God in my heart. I don't want to do what he says. My will and his will are at odds with each other. I want to decide what's right and wrong. I don't want to be told by God what's right and what's wrong. I want to be the judge. I want to decide those things for myself. I want to be the center of the universe. I want to be served. I do not want to obey anybody. I do not want to be told to repent or that I have to stop doing what I love. I do not want to turn from my evil ways. That's me, according to the true gospel. In the wrong and opposed to any outside rule. That's me. This is God. Holy and just. Not overlooking sin. With the right to judge me. And there is a gap between us. We are not together. There is a separation that has occurred because of sin. There is no hope of bridging it ourselves. And in this true gospel, the good news is not that God accepts me just as I am. That's not the good news. The good news in the true gospel is that the holy and just God is also a loving and merciful God. That's the good news. Not that he accepts me for whatever I want to be and do. The good news of the true gospel is that the holy and just God is also loving and merciful, so much so that he sent his son, Jesus, to become my sin. To become all of sin. And that God passed judgment on sin in the body and person of his son, Jesus Christ. And he executed judgment on sin in the body and the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And now I am acceptable to God on the grounds of personal faith in Jesus Christ and the reconciliation that he accomplished on my behalf. Remember, the great question that differentiates the true and false gospels is how does God demonstrate his love for people? Is it by accepting everyone for who they are? Or is it by giving his son as the one sacrifice for sins? Let me make it more personal for you. Has God demonstrated his love for you by accepting you or by giving his son for you. Which God is really there and which God is worthy of worship for an infinite succession of days? 
Is it the God who merely accepts people? Or the God who by his own free choice decided to give up his perfect son to purchase ungrateful people? What kind of love would you hope would be at the foundation of this awe-inspiring world? What kind of love do you want to be there at the foundation of everything? A God of shallow love who tolerates people? Or a God of love unknown, of a kind that we've never heard of, a love that surpasses our understanding in that it gives up the perfect to obtain the ugly by its own free choice. The good news is that the God that we really do want to be there in the depth of our soul is there. a deep, abiding love for you exists at the foundation of this world. A love that does not merely accept you. It is a love that gives up something of infinite value in order to obtain you. That's who God is, and that's what he's done for you. The good news is that you are so much more valuable than you thought, and so is Jesus. He's not just the ideal for mankind. He's the personal savior of mankind, the one that the Father gave up to purchase sinners. Only believe that God the Father has sent God the Son for this very purpose, to pay the penalty for your sin and receive the love of God. That's our message. One way we can go wrong is by compromising the message. Let's not compromise what is the most beautiful thing in the whole world. We've talked about our engagement, how our engagement is with real people. We've talked about our message, the true gospel that's willing to say things are not okay, but the good news is that there is a loving and merciful God who's given his son for you. Last thing we want to talk about is our attitude. learn about our attitude in verse 1 of chapter 4. We talked about the two ways we can go wrong on our gospel mission. One is by contradicting our message, compromising the message. The other is when we contradict the message with our attitude, and that's really the heart of this passage, is the attitude of the messenger. What we realize as we finish chapter 3 and we move on to chapter 4, make this unhappy observation that although God's wrath 
has been averted. God's not angry anymore. We learn that in verse 10, chapter 3. That although God's anger has been averted, Jonah's hasn't. He's still angry. He does not look like God looks at this point. There's an incongruence between God and his messenger. God's anger has passed. Jonah's is still there. He's angry. And we think, my goodness, after God saved him by sending the great fish to keep him alive and bring him back to land, how could he still possibly be like this? How could he be angry that God wants to save others after God saved him? What is wrong with him? And then we realize, oh, this is often our problem too. Let's do a little thought exercise together, especially after a year like 2020. Ask yourself this question. Are, could you make a top five list of people who you really find abhorrent? I know that's happening, right, in your minds right now. Who would I put on that list? Top five people that I find distasteful, untrustworthy, and abhorrent. Okay? Now, think about this. What are your feelings toward them? What do you hope happens to them? Is your dominant emotion toward them a desire that they find mercy? Or would you say your dominant emotions toward these people are things like anger and malice and a a desire to just relish the day of judgment for these people? You who sing the praises of a merciful God who have been saved by his mercy according to his grace, what's going on in your heart when you think about those those people? See, the great question in the book of Jonah is not will the Ninevites repent? That's not the question. I mean, they get straight A's in repentance. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable how they respond. Every time I read it, I can't believe it. These, all they've seen is Jonah going through the city, crying out this message in verse five, and the people of Nineveh believed God? What? Why? It's an amazing repentance. They did wonderfully, but that's not the question that the text thrusts us toward. The great question is, will Jonah repent? Will he repent of his bad attitude and the heart that does not look like the God that he represents? That's why chapter 4 is here, still waiting for us next week. What's going to happen to him? And the great question before us is, will we repent of the same thing, of those same feelings towards those other people after we've been saved, but carrying all this disgust and anger towards those people? 
how do we move toward having a heart more like the God of mercy? How does that happen that our heart could change to be more like the God that we represent, the God of mercy that we represent out there? Quickly, here at the end, three affirmations that we want to make about this mission and let our attitude and our heart be shaped by these three affirmations that I'm just calling moving toward a heart of mercy. Moving toward a heart of mercy. As we think about people. People. First of all, the value of all. The value of all. We affirm the value of all. Recognize that each person that you encounter bears the image of God. Genesis 1.26. Each person that you work with, the person you see at the store, the person you see standing on the street, the person that offends you by what they're wearing or how they look because they don't look like you. If they are human, they bear the image of God. God created them. And this is staggering to think about. Humanity is the crown of creation. Every, every person you see is more valuable and beautiful than all of those things in nature that you love to look at, the stars that we love to look at on a, on a dark night and loving to get away to the mountains and the lakes and everything that we want to look at, every person is way more valuable and beautiful than all of those things because none of those things bear the image of God. And a person does. Every human does. Let's train our eyes and our minds to see a person before we see a problem. That when we encounter a person, wherever we are, our first thought is, ah, there's an image bearer. There's one more person that bears the image of God. Whatever else they're presenting to me in this moment, visually or sensory experience, the most important thing is that's an image bearer. That's a human being. God says they bear his image. Beyond, they're beyond valuing. Jonah had trouble seeing people who were a threat to national security as image bearers. Those people in Nineveh were a threat to his national security. God confronted him about that attitude of not desiring mercy for them, not seeing them primarily as image bearers. Candidates for mercy, just like him. We first want to affirm the value of all. Second thing that we want to affirm, trying to develop a heart of mercy that looks like God, is the brokenness of all. 
okay? Value of all, yes. Also, the brokenness of all, of course. Just recognize the effect that sin has had on all of us. We are image bearers, but we are broken image bearers. Or to put it more theologically, fallen. Or to put it a little more crudely, messed up. Sin has marred the image of God in all of us. That image is still there, but it's marred. Now, how does understanding the brokenness of all affect our attitude toward people? Two things. First of all, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when people who don't know the Lord act like they don't know the Lord. Because they say that or do that or whatever, right? We would not expect the same kind of light to come from a broken lamp as we do a working lamp. Humanity is broken. We expect things that are broken to act broken. Don't be surprised by displays of brokenness from broken people. Secondly, don't be afraid. Do not be afraid. This one is huge. Let me ask you a question. Who in our society should be moving toward broken people? Should it be the professional, the professionals, the, the counselors, the social workers, the people that get paid to do it? Should we expect them to be moving out to help those people? Should it not rather be the Christian? The one who follows Christ? Should it not be our privilege in our role to walk amid scenes of brokenness and bring the hope of Jesus Christ to broken people. That's the church. That's us. That's our commission. Not just to gather together for the purpose of keeping others out, but to disperse and go to broken people wherever they are and bring the light and the hope of Jesus, to go to the idolatrous and the adulterous and the greedy and the proud and the self-righteous because we bear his name, the name of Jesus, we go. We walk amid those scenes. We are the presence of Christ. These are gospel-centered concepts, the value of all, the brokenness of all. Finally, we end here, servant of all. the value of all, the brokenness of all, finally, this idea of the servant of all. And here we're talking about this amazing attribute of Jesus that I don't think we'll ever be able to get over. That is, it's just astounding that the holiest person who ever walked the planet was also the one that sinners loved to gather around. How could it be so? How could it be true that this holy, holy person, sinners love to congregate around him? How did that happen? He did not give an inch on his message. And yet the sinners gathered around, and that's what we're trying to figure out. How did he teach truth and love people so well? What was it about him? What do we need to know? Here's the thing that we need to grasp 
brothers and sisters, that this faithful messenger who came with the authority to tell people, you're not okay, and that turning to him was necessary, this same person who delivered that message was also their servant. Jesus came to sinful people to serve them. He came as the suffering servant. That's what we need to internalize, that the messenger must be the servant. We get really angry and we get uncomfortable because the circle of mercy gets wider. Oh, God's mercy is including those people now. That's not my first choice because we still think that we're above certain people. Jesus says, no, you're underneath them. We're here for them. We're here to serve them. So when we encounter a person, first thought, there's an image bearer. Second thought, they're broken, just like me. Next thought, I'm here to serve them. I'm that person's servant. I'm not above them. I'm certainly not above Jesus. And he came. Not to be served, but to serve. Paul, 1 Corinthians 9, for though I am free from all, I have made myself servant to all that I might win more of them. Let's wrap it up. What does all this mean? It means that I am here in this world to be the person who sees value in this other person. I'm here to be the one that knows their name. I'm here to be the person that sees their brokenness but does not reject them. I'm here to be the one that's willing to draw near, to listen, to give, to serve, that by any means I might win them for Jesus Christ. Who in your life needs you to be that person for them? The one that's not surprised and not afraid, but comes near. Think about what you can do this week to take one small step toward that person. Use their name when you don't have to. Bring an extra bottle of water for them. Invite them to something you're doing. Show them Show them what Jesus is like. Be the presence of Christ in their life. It's the kind of church that we want to be. There's lots of churches that are at one of two extremes. Either no gospel message in all servanthood or all servanthood and no gospel message. And you know from being good students of the scriptures that it's always both. That Jesus was always meeting the physical and the spiritual needs. So it must be with us. It's always both. That's why sinners drew near to the holiest man. Because he didn't only bring the message. He was also the one that met their needs. One integrated whole. The Christian. That's how we represent the God of mercy 
to the world. We become servants to broken image bearers that we might win more of them to Christ. The value of all, the brokenness of all, we're here to be the servant of all. We're going to finish our time with Jonah next Sunday, Lord willing. But today, find your joy in the reality that you get to go out and represent the God of mercy, this beautiful God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, oh, that we pray for renewed and repentant hearts. I, I put my hand up in the air first and say, I am in need of repentance. I have not been the Christian that I should be among people. I pray that the Holy Spirit would overwhelm us in these moments and just by testifying quietly, this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. To be unsurprised and unafraid, but to confidently walk in the Holy Spirit toward broken people with the light of Jesus Christ. Help us not to be afraid. Give us courage God, you yourself live inside of us by means of the Holy Spirit. This is all of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's great desire is to glorify Jesus Christ. Please, Father, give this privilege to us. Give us resolve to go. Change our hearts, we pray in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen.